0: Hello friends, you're listening to Exit Point, a podcast about the advancement of base jumping and an exploration of its culture. I'm Laurent Fratt, producer and co-host. You can support this independent production by visiting our Buy Me A Coffee link in the description and giving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Scott Palmer. Scott, also known as Plammer, is a third-generation aviator, was a forward air controller with the U.S. Air Force, and after serving in Iraq, went on to pursue a skydiving career with total focus. With over 15 years in the sport and 11 plus thousand skydives, Scott has traveled the world competing and became one of the most sought-after tunnel coaches. He has multiple world records and championship titles, and has been involved in a ton of amazing aerial stunts, including appearing on Nitro Circus. After reaching what might be the pinnacle of skydiving, Plammer changed his focus from flying his body to flying airplanes. He's now an aerial firefighter for the U.S. federal government. I'm looking forward to catching up with Plammer and hearing about how he's applied all his various life experiences to his base jumping. So with that, let's get Plammer on the track. Cool. Well, thanks, man. Um, thanks for doing this. We got up early to talk. We did and uh, catching you at the end of your trip. And I feel like you guys nailed it. You're walking away with the weather coming in. You had nonstop beautiful weather. Congratulations. Thank
1: you. Yeah, 15 days of a surprise trip for me at the end of my fire season. I was able to come here and we jumped every day and got a lot of the classics I was hoping to jump. So very happy.
0: You really got the best of what uh, the 74 can uh, offer. Yes, I did. (laughs) It's like, uh, it can be a little bit uh, difficult because, you know, I'm working, I have a family and my friends come into town and they get to do all the stuff that I want to do. And uh, so thanks for making me jealous. Yeah, you're welcome. I felt a little bit bad. Like, (laughs) I I
1: understand your pain, you know, I've been working all summer long while my friends are out having fun and it hurts. It hurts when you're at work. So I tried not to rub it in too much while I was raging in your town.
0: (laughs) What um you're working as a firefighter, uh, aviation firefighting is I think is what you call it, right?
1: Yes, it's aerial firefighting, and I hate to use the term that I'm a firefighter because it, I think it does a disservice to the gentlemen on the ground or the and the women on the ground. Uh, but we we do assist the wildland firefighting crews on the ground. So I fly an airplane called a uh, Air Tractor 802, which was modified from a crop dusting airplane. Uh, it was put on floats that were made for a twin otter. they cut off the back third of the uh, floats so we can now fly down to the lake or a river and scoop up 800 gallons of water and then take it to a fire and drop it on the fire and we operate in flights of two to four upwards to six or eight aircraft so we can really put a lot of water on fire really quickly
0: wow that's got to be super intense i mean first just being a pilot in general it can have some a lot of intensity to it. And then you scooping water, the dynamics of a fire operation, the comms must be insane.
1: The, the, I think that's the hardest part for people coming. F- so to do my specific job in aerial firefighting, you have to be a crop duster prior. And in crop dusting, we don't talk on the radio very often. But because I was former military and a former JTAC or forward air controller, I'm used to talking on the radio quite a lot. And then my father, who taught me how to fly, was a former fighter pilot and air traffic controller. So he just like drilled in discipline of how to talk on the radio. So for me, that was a super easy transition. But yeah, I mean, we're monitoring four radios all the time and sometimes six radios. So you have to set up your radios in a way in which each radio has a different volume. So you have like a crescendo of volume. So you know which person's talking to you on which radio. And then having the ability to one fly a plane in a low level environment in changing weather conditions and wind conditions and so yeah i guess it's intense but again for me it it wasn't a uh, more intense than anything i'd ever done before again coming from a former military and being deployed to iraq and then wingsuit base jumping and skydiving and high level aerial cinematography and things like that it was just kind of par for the course for me and it's uh it's it's exactly what i should be doing i shouldn't be flying a uh a 747 with a 300 people in the back, that's for sure. That's not for me.
0: When you got into uh, flying uh, airplanes, did you know that this is the direction that you wanted to go or did it sort of appear as you were progressing?
1: You know, I didn't have a clear path when I started flying. I knew um, like around the age of 30, I'd been skydiving for uh, 15 years or something like that. And I was like, I need to find another path forward for my future you know i played around a lot and i never really thought about the future too much so i knew it was time for me to start thinking about flying and i thought oh maybe i'll be a commercial airline pilot or something and as i got into flying and aviation paths just opened for me and when i got my commercial pilot's license i had been flying in the idaho backcountry i'd bought a little two seat tail dragger airplane with big tires. And so I've been flying with a certain type of aviators who are more the cowboys, I would say of aviation. And through this group of guys, I met people who are crop dusting and I was like, well, that's, that's what I want to get into. That's like the wild west of aviation. And so I started crop dusting and my first season as a crop duster, I saw the fire boss come into the air, the, the fire boss, of the airplane I fly now. It came into the airfield I was crop dusting out of, and I was like, what is that? I'd never even seen it before. I was like, ah, that's what I want to do. And all the crop dusters were like, no, you don't want to do that. It's too much radio work. You don't get to fly as much. But I was like, no, I I think that mission's more in line with who I am. So it took three years of crop dusting to get all the minimum requirements in and meet the people I needed to meet to be able to get the job that I have now.
0: Is crop dusting one of the most dangerous sections of aviation?
1: Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think it is the most dangerous part of aviation. Maybe military stuff might be well, yeah. up there, but it's not super well published. But in terms of flight hours and crashes, it's, it's, it's a pretty dangerous sector just because we're operating planes in a, a, a low level environment. And anytime, as with wingsuiting, we started operating in a low level environment, accidents do happen. And unlike the mountains in the Alps where there's very few wires and in, in uh, crop dusting or a- aerial agriculture flying. We we fly next to power lines and next to water pipes and terrain a lot and unfortunately fatigue happens and it's money driven, right? So we're trying to fly as much as we can in the day and sometimes pilots uh, get fatigued and forget that, hey, what we're doing is super dangerous and. They make that little mistake. It's not too often a mechanical failure anymore. It's mostly
0: pilot error. Reminds me of uh, our sport. Yeah. Right? They've got a lot of similarities. Yeah. Is there any other similarities you can think of?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, being able to to fly ahead of the airplane, this is, uh, I think, a super important uh, thing that you have to be able to do in in aerial ag- agriculture and aerial firefighting is you have to be really far ahead of the airplane and just like wingsuit proximity flying you need to be not thinking about what's what's just here, but you need to be thinking much further down the line like in we call them passes in crop dusting where we're not flying on that pass we're not looking at that pass we're flying at the next pass or even the pass after that we're planning for that one while we're currently flying so it's not so much the same with a wing student where you're thinking about the next jump, but I'm definitely thinking way further down the mountain than
0: I am right now. Thinking in front of the aircraft, that's uh that's interesting. Is that something like a theory a theory or a theoretical practice? Um or things that you go over in like the education side of, of uh your um, training?
1: Yeah. So fly, being ahead of the airplane, that's a common theme from when you're a, a private pilot all the way up until you're an everyday commercial line pilot. And it kind of goes back to uh, training, planning, executing, and then debriefing. So this is like a core fundamentals of flying and aviation and in military work. And then I bring this into skydiving and base jumping as well. Like I, I train for things, then I plan for the jump, and then I execute the plan. And then you have to have realistic debriefing after and say, oh, well, this is actually how I deviated from my plan how it worked, how it didn't work, how can I make it better for the next time.
0: Did you find yourself debriefing some of your jumps uh, on this trip?
1: Yeah, we debrief quite a bit. Or I debrief every time, but I try to debrief with other people who are on the jump as well, Like just like simple things like comparing starts. Did you start where you thought you were going to start? And then, like, uh, no, I didn't. And then somebody else says, no, I didn't either. And I Oh, well, that's interesting because we all thought the conditions were going to be positive but it turns out the conditions were probably more neutral so
0: that just helps like ingrain uh maybe the sensations that you had at the exit point and then the reality of the performance that you had during it and then um tying those together maybe helps you to have a different sight picture the next time you're up there. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of like the intention behind it yeah yeah that's interesting um what about other elements of the flight that you like to debrief besides the start
1: uh, I really like to pre-brief the line that we're going to fly, talk about the potential hazards that are there, you know, and and have an idea of the line that you're going to fly. And, and then sometimes that doesn't, you can deviate from that plan, like in flight. Like, oh, actually, I see a better line now that I'm not watching it on a video. Or you've jumped that jump a few times so you know you can make some changes. Like some of the mountains here are very open to you don't really need to have a strict plan of what you're going to do. You can kind of let the, the jump reveal itself to you as you go. But then I like to debrief that, how that line actually went, where what were my key points that I, I picked up while in flight, and can I use those again? For example, on uh, Grand Chavalar, we jumped there. I jumped previously from a different exit point, so I kind of knew the second half of the line that I wanted to fly. And so then when we jumped high, high Grand Chevalier, I was able to try and pick those same key points up again that I had, one, identified in the first jump, and then I debriefed myself on them. And then I was trying to visualize those before I went into the second jump and it seemed to work quite well.
0: Yeah, are you, maybe we can deviate a little bit more because of the amount of landing areas all over the place, right? Like we can get a little bit lazy in the Alps. There's just green fields everywhere. Yes. Grand Chavalard might not be a great example because of all the, you know, the vineyards, but um yeah, there's still plenty of landing areas.
1: Yeah, and there's plenty of altitude to go play over here for a second and then still have that ultimate thought of where am I going to land and what is the wind doing so can I make it to a good place to deploy my parachute?
0: What about um, deployments? Do you ever talk about deployments, areas, like with your uh, jumping partner ahead of time? Or does that just feel like that just kind of comes with the territory?
1: I think sometimes, yeah. I mean, we talk about it, especially if the wind is up in the landing area, or we know that like we're jumping into a valley that has a pretty strong valley flow. I like to remind myself and then whoever else is jumping with me that, hey, we really need to commute to a good pull zone. Like don't be pulling downwind of the, the landing area. And then sometimes you just think, oh, this is common sense. But instead of just thinking this is common sense, it's better just to voice these concerns or voice your opinion on the exit point or on the hike
0: up. Yeah. It's always better just to like put it all out there, like vocalize it, right? Even if it's super simple and everybody's really seasoned, just like vocalizing it might help. Like someone can be distracted. They're like maybe fiddling with their camera or they've got some new a new suit or they're eating some snacks, whatever, just like vocalizing that I think can help everybody sort of focus on, you know, some of the things that are important, right?
1: Yeah, I think so too. And in, in aerial firefighting, when we work as a flight, so my plane only has one seat in it. So I'm in charge of everything in the airplane, but we work as a flight of two or three or four airplanes. So very similar to wingsuit base jumping when we go with our friends and we have very strict call and response cues that we have over the radio. Like as soon as I take off, uh, one's up, handles up, which means the gear handles up, gear in transit. And so then we know the gear pumps are running. And then before we touch down on the water, it's like props full forward, handles up. I have four blue lights for the water, gate is armed, E-dump pressure checks. And so each person in the flight has to repeat these things when somebody calls it out. And it's not, and it, we, we've already done it in our own personal checklist, but we say it out loud just to reinforce that. And then man, I could save you in one day, like, oh, you, you go through the, oh, I have four blue lights for the water, but you don't actually look and see if you have four blue lights. Cause if you don't have four blue lights, you're going to crash as soon as you hit the water. So I think that with base jumping, just audibly saying these things, not necessarily making everybody say them back to you, but yeah, verbalizing these things on the exit point is important. Just gets people thinking about this, reminding them, oh yeah, I was too focused on the line, not focused enough on where I need to pull.
0: What about visualization?
1: Uh, visualization is huge, you know. Uh, I was listening to uh, your podcast with Luke the other day and talking about visual, visual, visualization, and he's like, "I'm so weird. I can just picture things in 3 I was like, "Well, I don't think that's weird at all. That's exactly how I see the world all the time. You know, I love this zoomed out picture. You know, I I don't see." I don't visualize in my head of what I'm seeing. I visualize myself flying down the hill or myself flying an airplane or myself flying in the tunnel. I see it from the viewer's perspective.
0: So like third person? Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Tell me a little bit more about that, like your visualization process.
1: Uh, I, I don't know if it's such a, a process, but I just try to look at the the overall picture. You know, I think this zoomed out third person view, if, if you will, it helps you not be so focused on the individual task at hand, but it allows you to see all of the other elements that can go along with it. Like I try and visualize my, like for a wingsuit base jump line, for example, I try and visualize what the wind is doing, what the wind looks like in the mountains, and then what that looks like me flying down those mountains, where I'm going to see the wind shadows and the rotors, where I am gonna would expect to see turbulence and things like that. So then I know when I'm flying, and I feel these things. It's like, well, I couldn't. Well, okay, that's exactly what I thought it was going to be. No big deal. Like we jumped uh, out of a helicopter over Mount Blanc the other Mount Blanc the other day, and it was fairly windy. We debriefed it before. We're like, oh, it's it's going to be kind of windy, and we were like, the first run, we're like, okay, right, we're going to take it a little bit easy and just kind of see how it feels. So we approached the summit very cautiously, had extra speed, and I knew like, okay, where the wind was coming from as we rounded a certain corner, there's going to be a, a bump. So we raise up 50, 100 feet, and yeah, sure enough, there's a bump there. No big deal. You can settle back into the flight, re- regain speed, and yeah. I think that visualization was super important because if you we'd come into that line slow and flat, just trying to stretch out to get to the line and get close to terrain, that's when you can find yourself in trouble with uh, burbles or with turbulence. Turbulence, yeah. You know? But I think if you're speedy and have margin, then these things are manageable risks.
0: We were talking about uh, firefighting courses uh, on our way over here. And, uh, you know, I have a background in firefighting, like we were talking about. And um, I thought, like, this is has to do with visualization and wind. And I thought one of the most interesting weather courses I ever took was the um, white, uh, was a rapid water rescue. And mm. uh, you're like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. But you learn about how the water flows through uh, uh, a riverbed or wherever the water is, and you really get to visualize. I mean, wind, air is the same, and the way that it eddies and, and causes turbulence around corners and things like that really it helps you by visualizing water. You can actually visualize how air is moving through um, through uh, the topography, and uh, so. So when you said that about being on the Mont Blanc, I definitely do that, and I just think about like you know what the forecasted wind is supposed to be, how it's going to look as it you know runs over certain features and stuff like that. And I think it's been really helpful for both my wingsuiting and my paragliding.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, water and wind are the exact same. You know, that was something super beneficial for me uh, coming into aerial firefighting because I also land an airplane on water all the time, and so we have to understand water currents and and we land in rivers and it's the same one very cool visualization tool if you don't have the ability to just close your eyes and think what the wind is doing is the windy app Mm. shows the wind the way it was interacting with terrain i have a really good one for aviation called foreflight that shows surface wind and it's based kind of like windy um it's it's incredible especially when you really zoom in and you can see the the rotors and how the wind's interacting with the terrain and and then that'll help you build your own essay on individual places where you go but keep in mind windy's always just a forecast it's not real
0: right and foreflight is a little bit more um yeah
1: foreflight is just an aviation app that yeah, I think it uses the same probably model as Windy to bring in the surface wind, but it shows how the wind interacts with the
0: surface. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. You talked a little bit about um, conversing on four different radio channels. And for me, that would just like my head would explode probably. you know, I just don't have the capacity to handle that much uh, communication. And in line with flying the Mont Blanc, I would assume that you guys were on comms, right? Yeah. Yeah. That adds a little bit of an element to uh wingsuit flying, doesn't it?
1: It does. I think you can add too much. I think there's a, I, I jumped with comms a few years ago. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or something when they first were coming out and I didn't really like it. And I also tried comms in the tunnel when that was a big thing. Like, Oh, we need to have comms for coaching. And I didn't like it. It's like, I could hear the breathing too much. You can over heavy breathing, over communicate, <laughs> right? But now that I'm in an aviation job and where we train, how we talk on the radio, and we train in formation and the brevity that we use, I think if we were to bring that into wingsuit flying, like Taz and I have talked now, like oh, I think we should really bring radios into our flying. I, it allows us to fly a lot closer, and you know when you're following somebody, you feel like you, especially if you follow them a lot. Like I have, I don't know, 200 jumps following Taz in a base environment. And I feel like I know what she's going to do, but she can still surprise me sometimes. Not surprise me in a bad way, but like, oh, I think she's going to do a slow left turn and she breaks hard left or something. But if you have calms and you have a good brevity, she like, I have a left hard coming in three, two, one, turn. And so Fred and I had that flying down the Mount Blanc, and it was awesome. But on the second jump, he was ripping really hard down and I was able to just stick right with him because he's like, all right, left turn coming in and we'd send it.
0: Yeah. Same with me. I tried comms like 10 years ago when they first came out and I, maybe it was because there was a delay or they just didn't, the connectivity and you know, you were almost every other, um, communication was like, Hey, are you still there? Are you, (laughs) you know? So it was sort of, yeah. But now they're, they seem to be really good. And, uh, Yeah, I had a couple of really nice jumps with Taz this year, too, um, following her, and she did an amazing job of being uh, a partner. And uh, we talked a lot about that afterwards, our own little version of debriefing, and um, it just really helped emphasize the fact that uh, filming and uh, flying together is really uh, like a partnership. It's like a team sport. 100%. Because, uh, you know, sometimes people will – I don't know, maybe we'll want to get the very best start they can, or like they have a hard time, um, maybe modulating their start. Um, but, um, you know, you, I weigh close to 90 kilos and, uh, you know, Taz is really good and she's a lot lighter than me, has a big suit. Uh, she has great start performance. I'm not going to be able to capture her start unless she works with me a little bit, you know, relaxing and not just trying to get the maximum performance out of her start. Uh, what are some of the other things? Because you've done a lot of really cool projects and uh, you've done a lot of filming. Um, how do you like to work with people when you're working behind the camera?
1: Uh, so the pre-brief is number one. It's most important that the performer understands that you're a team. And if they want to be on camera, then they have to work with you. Like you, no matter what, you can always outrun me, right? Because I'm going to step off just after you. I'm not going to step off. In the same configuration as you because we're two human beings. We have different weight and things like that. So we have to work together. Bar none. And that's hard for the performer, right? A lot of times they get, if you're like me, you know, like, I have performance anxiety. I want my configuration to look really good when I'm flying. I don't want to look crappy. So I don't want to go slow, but you have to go slow-ish. And then slower, sm- yeah. Slower, especially on the start. And then, then build into it. Don't just go ham. Like it doesn't matter who you are. You can outrun me. Trust me. If, yeah. you, if you go you're gonna you're gonna leave me um and then having an accurate picture of what you want to accomplish with the shot i think that's important and it's, i don't need it doesn't need to be super super detailed down to like the minute oh i'm going to turn exactly 45 degrees this way i'm going to push 10 degrees this way it's just like we have an overall picture of what we're trying to accomplish with the shot and then we're both working together and understanding that we might not get it on the first one or the second one or the third one, but we're just working towards this goal, overall goal of this one shot.
0: Yeah. Having an idea of what you want to accomplish is a good idea. Another part of your background, um, you have a huge experience in tunnel flying. You were an instructor for um, how many years? Uh,
1: I guess I was, I don't know. I'd have to actually like Put okay. a little bit of math to it, but uh, I, I instructed like working for the wind tunnel as the safety guy. I started in like 2005 and I worked for two or three years full-time as a tunnel instructor between Skydive Arizona, or I mean Sky Venture Arizona, and then I Fly Ogden, and then Paraclete XP. And then I got to a level where I didn't want to be the guy standing in the door watching first-timers fly or other people coach. I just wanted to be the one coaching. I wanted to be the boss in the tunnel when I was in there. So I just left being an instructor and just became a full-time coach. And then I did that for 10 years or something, 15 years of just solid coaching all the time. And it was super exciting time as I started in Sky Venture Arizona, which was the first wall-to-wall high-speed wind tunnel. And I think that was a big pivoting point for indoor skydiving when we could actually fly with free fly suits that we used in the sky and fly head down and then slowly progress into what's now called tunnel dynamic or things like that which is just basically invented by tunnel instructors playing around in the tunnel and so I got to see the birth of that and then that become a competition and then it become an FAI sanctioned competition and tunnels go from four or five tunnels in the world where I knew every tunnel flyer in the world to now there's 150 or something tunnels around the world maybe more. and. There's kids who are flying at a higher level than I ever thought people could even fly at. Now it's, it's pretty incredible.
0: Wow. So you've really seen it um, butt into a, in a whole new sport. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, When I was doing a lot of tunnel flying, a lot, when I was doing some tunnel flying, um, people were sort of surprised that I was interested in tunnel flying because I'm a wingsuiter. And while I like to free fly, I uh, don't have a lot of experience and didn't really have an, a ton of intention to like, you know, do lots of free flying. But I immediately connected with how good it would help me in general of of just flying through the air with a wingsuit on or not. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the relationship that you developed with the air and how tunnel flying came into um help mold that?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think most people think skydiving is just falling through the air. And I think tunnel flying is balancing on the wind. So if you're a tunnel flyer and you understand this concept of balancing, uh, it, it applies really well to any form of flight. And it's become, you become very, very body aware. Like, oh, I'm, I need to balance on this wind. Um, it's not that I'm falling through and I'm not pressing on it to hold a certain position. I'm simply balancing on a cushion of air. Um, and then... For me, there is only belly flying and back flying. And if you believe this, then it correlates directly to wingsuiting as well, because in wingsuiting, we only have belly and back flying. And so then the concepts just very easily transition from flying without a suit to with a suit. I think that's why I was able to pick up wingsuit flying so fast. And I mean, not so fast. I mean, I've been doing wingsuiting since the... Birdman GTI days, so quite quite a while. I mean, I'm a little old now. It seems like it was really fast to me, but I guess it's been quite a few years. Um, but I think if you can relax in the wind, in the wind tunnel, and understand to feel and to balance, then, then you can learn to transition between the two, and then it becomes just an easy transition to taking that balancing feeling to the sky, and um, then you're able to fly a wingsuit the same way and have that same presence of the body while you're flying your wingsuit and I think it makes you a, a much better pilot faster.
0: That You mentioned something last night when we were having dinner about how you weren't thinking about your suit or your position you were just thinking about getting the shot um, while you were following somebody and uh, that just makes me think like oh yeah okay so it's as long as you're not having to think about what you're doing you're really in a good position to Um, just perform at a really high level, right? Because every time you like overthink something, your awareness is reduced and you're sort of stuck in the process. But when you don't even have to think about or you have to spend a lot of, you know, mental space perfecting your position or your configuration, it gives you a lot more um, brain power to to focus on other things. Exactly. I think it's not that I don't
1: think about my configuration, but I'm a lot because of, through the experience and the the level I'm at now, I'm able to, yeah, not devote as much mental capacity to that. I can think more about the shot or I can think more about what I think the group of skydivers in front of me is about to do and how I can frame that better. And then I can also think about what my toes are doing really quickly and like, Oh, my right foot feels like it's a little messed up. I need to do this to increase my speed or something.
0: Do you have, um, well, let's, I mean, going back to that, I remember like, uh, one of the Red Bull aces, you did really well. Um, maybe you did really well in all of them. I, I don't remember, but there was one in particular where you did the quite second, well.
1: uh, session I did pretty good.
0: Yeah. That was uh, well, a good time zone. Um, so just, I mean, I'm just put throwing that out there that, you know, maybe you're not a competitive, uh, competition flyer, but, uh, you really know how to fly with really good performance. Is there a, a mental checklist, or is there like a process that you go through, um, while in air to, um, to work on performance?
1: You know, I don't know my performance that well. I, I jump with the fly site quite a lot in base, than base environment, uh, just mostly to understand the start arc and things like this. So I don't jump them in the skydiving world. So I don't actually know how well my performance is. I do know, I don't feel like I'm, I'm behind too much um i don't necessarily have a mental checklist but it's comes down to airspeed and airspeed is we understand that in wingsuiting just through the sound of how fast you're going you know the configuration all i try to almost always keep my configuration the same i don't push too hard with the shoulders or anything like that i try and just make this suit as tight as it should be in a flat position you know don't i don't roll the shoulders down or push the arms down anymore and maybe that's a technique that makes people go faster in competition i don't really know Uh, i think it's just stretch the suit as tight as you can get it and then understand pitch control
0: um yeah i mean like we can't like i don't want you to understate your performance because i mean maybe you're not checking fly side all the time but you're flying with some of the best pilots in the world so uh, you got to keep if you're keeping up you're you're flying fast
1: yeah and uh, lucky for me, I jump my home drops on the Skydive capalison, and we like to fly fast there. So I feel like I stay on the edge, you know. I go away for a few months, and I come back, and I'm like, "Ooh, everybody's flying fast again." Okay, step it up. <laughs> Order your
0: suit tight. I'm really interested in this uh, mental capacity thing. Um, so, like, maybe we can um, we can uh, sit on this topic just for a little bit longer. Um, the in your aviation base your career do you ever come into these moments where it's like oh man there's a lot of things going down i need to like reduce uh, the mental load that i have to deal with here or are there any moments that you can think of where you're in your airplane and going like okay well let's like cut down one one of the distractions or
1: tell me yeah so load shedding right it's like simple like if the airplane is having a malfunction with the electrical system, we need to shut off certain electrical things. And the same thing works with the brain. If you're having an overload with the brain, you need to shut down non-critical things really quickly. And so, yeah, in wingsuiting, like, you, you can get too much, you know, going on, and you just need to be able to quiet, quiet the mind, turn those things off. Yeah, I don't know exactly how I decide what needs to go away, but... Uh, Yeah. Turn off what's uh, not needed right away. Right then. Like not in all skydives, but in certain stunts and things like that, like flying with the Porter or flying with the Red Bull 182 and we're getting a shot, but I know we're like tracking like way off the airport or off the designated demo area or whatever. And it's like, I could stress about that. I could leave the formation. I could try to get everybody else's attention. Hey, we're not or I can just like yeah whatever we'll we'll deal with it. You no, know? I'm not saying everybody should just like go off and do their own demo somewhere in an unknown landing area, but that's the sort of thing like that could that could distract me from the job at hand. And I know that I have enough bandwidth that I can turn that off and deal with the consequence of turning that off later.
0: I had a similar situation um, because I was doing some camera work and uh, jumping out of a helicopter, and I was. 99.9% of the time on my back, looking up at the sky. And I wasn't, had never, you know, I knew that we had plenty of options for landing areas. <laughs> and so I just sort of like waited till I turned over to, to figure out where I was going, uh, trusting obviously the, the lead. Um, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, it was like, uh, same thing, uh, same example. Like I was like, okay, I should probably realize where we're going. I know kind of the idea of which direction we're going, but, uh, Put it out of my mind, focused on getting the shot, and uh, it worked out okay. Landed yeah. off, but like not by far, and it was safe. Another
1: example of that it might be when you have line twists, right? It's really easy for a, uh, or an emergency of any sort. It's really easy, like oh, 10,000 things I need to do right now and like start freaking out and lose the order in which things need to be done. Like, with line twists, you need to fix where the parachute's flying right away, especially in base jumping, especially if we pull close to something. like. Yay, you can unzip your arms or twist the risers and get the right line twist down but first and foremost turn everything else off and point the parachute in the correct direction and then deal with it it's like not necessarily i haven't forgotten about all those other things but i just need to prioritize certain things you know
0: that's a great example you um you had a military career before you got involved with skydiving and tunnel flying and um can you tell me a little bit about that
1: I wouldn't call it a a career. I was in the military for six years, so I would do a disservice to the men and women who've served like 20 years and call themselves career veterans. But I was in the military for six years, and it happened to be during 2001 and 9-11 and then the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. So I was in the special operations community. I was a tactical air control party or a joint terminal air controller controlling airstrikes. So I maneuvered with an Army team and... We, I would, if we came to a high-value target or came troops in contact that with something bigger than just a, somebody shooting an AK-47 back at us, then we'd call in the big boys and have the A-10s come in or the F-18s, something like that. And in 2003, I deployed to Iraq when we initially invaded Iraq and went through that stuff. And then uh, shortly after that, I was like, hey, I think... Skydiving as a civilian would be a pretty good job versus this job, so I got out of the military and been running ever since.
0: There's a couple of branches that do that uh, for uh, combat controlling. Or uh, were you in the um, in the Air Force, or were you in the Army, or?
1: So I was in the Air Force, and for the most part, generally only the Air Force controls air strikes. Uh, some Navy SEALs can go through the JTAC school some Rangers, some cat guys, but, and so yeah, not to do a disservice on any of those guys, but those guys have a different job and they're just a little bit into the air traffic or the combat controller, um, forward air controlling, close air support job where attack P that's, that's their main job is close air support.
0: Okay. So they're dabblers and you were, that was your main gig.
1: Right. And so then we dabbled in CQB or maneuvering with them. So definitely not on any levels of those special operators on that sort of thing. But our specialty was close air support.
0: Okay. Did you, sorry, did you, um, enlist because of nine 11 or was it just coincidental?
1: No, I was already in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was raised in a military family and I was not so smart in school, so it just seemed like a appropriate thing to do. I didn't want to go to college and looking back on it, I should have probably been gone to college and flown military metal. My dad was a fighter pilot, but at that age, I think I wanted to do something different from my dad and going to be a jungle bunny or a snake eater sounded like a pretty good idea to me.
0: Hmm. What, describe those terms for people who don't know.
1: <laughs> uh, I think jungle bunny, I, I don't know if that's an official term or anything, but I remember the recruiting poster for Attack P. It was like this dude in green with camo all over his face, like coming up out of the water, like, probably the same photo for Navy SEALs and things like that. And I was like, wow, I want to go do that. And then the snake eater term just means somebody who goes out in the field and is not afraid to stay out in the field and do whatever it takes to survive.
0: Do you you feel like it shaped you in a lot of ways, your military service?
1: Absolutely. I fall back on those things that I didn't think were shaping me at the time, but now I'm older, I realize, ah, I operate a little bit differently than a lot of people who don't have that former military training and discipline. And as much as I try to like disassociate with that, it's still very much a corporate core. That's uh, it's, yeah, part of my core for sure.
0: Do you have some examples? Uh,
1: attention to detail. Um, yeah. The integrity that it comes with just being responsible for yourself and responsible for your teammates and, being true to that um uh, a, a strong work ethic and a strong want to work hard until the job is done no give up
0: strong <laughs> <laughs> some mental fortitude yes uh I didn't was you know i didn't serve in the military but i was a medic and a firefighter and um one of the things that i took away from it and i've seen in the way you do things too and how we're talking right now but like slow is fast i had this one time where i was it's like one of the first times where i ran a code as a medic and um you know this person was on the ground uh, didn't have a pulse and uh we've had a i had a good idea that we could work this person and and get some positive results uh, maybe naively and but my hands were like shaking and i was like reaching for all the gear and um i think one of the firefighters uh well i know one of the firefighters sort of like put his hand on my shoulder and he was like just go a little bit slower slow is fast and uh, you know i knew i found out later after talking to him because you know he did a huge service to me i mean i had heard that concept before and maybe put it into practice even but never was it more applicable than this moment of like huge adrenaline um everything really felt like it was on the line and it was up to me to save this person's life and as soon as i slowed down Everything just became methodical and, and calm. My breathing slowed down, my heart rate reduced, and uh, this was a really powerful moment. But talking to this firefighter later on, that you know he had he had been to Iraq and served in the military as well, and probably brought it over and uh, from from that training. Uh, but super valuable uh, as well for for my base jumping, any of my flying, um, anything that's really been important in my life.
1: hmm uh, Breath, you know, slow down and take a breath, you know, like things started getting a little bit crazy and you start like fff, sucking it all in and not breathing right
0: just breathe man do you have um a certain breathing practice or pattern that you like to incorporate like maybe when you're scared at the exit point or feel the tension maybe some performance anxiety on a filming job or any of that stuff
1: you know i don't really i don't try not to get too much performance anxiety anymore it's pretty good i just relax and do the same thing just breathe and like i said slow everything down i like i don't get too excited about well how the exit count's gonna go anymore once i'm ready i'm ready so i tell the person hey okay let's go and i just i tend to look down I'm Just like and then i just try and listen and i look at their feet i just wait and then
0: look at their feet so they you know when they're going to leave the rock kind on of exactly.
1: thing. exactly yeah and you just step at the same time and and then for me instantly it, it it's just all quiet now and now it's just I'm working I'm in my happy place
0: so you went from the military and you said hey I want to be a skydiver um what did your family think of that oh
1: man they don't like that at all <laughs> they still don't like it <laughs> My dad being a fighter pilot and a pilot, and all of my uncles and grandfathers being pilots, oh, okay. it was like, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? It's so cliche. But, and they've never come, you know. My dad's never watched me skydive. My mom never. She hates it. My mom won't even get in a little airplane with us. But I think as time went on, they realized that uh, I was actually going to do this and it wasn't just a, f- a phase, you know. And then I think really I gained a little more respect for my dad when I finally started flying airplanes and now have a job as a pilot. He's like, oh, okay, he's all right. He just does that jumping thing for fun.
0: That uh, jumping stuff. Your brother probably gave him a lot of grief as well, right? Your your brother's uh, been a uh, uh, really accomplished uh, free flight uh, pilot. Right, mm-hmm. He's a paragliding focused on paragliding, right?
1: Yeah, my dad wouldn't did that with him. Just <laughs> not jumping out of an airplane. But Cade also jumps out of airplanes and base jumps. And I can remember when, so my dad taught Cade and I how to fly when we were in our 30s. So already accomplished base jumper, skydivers, paragliders. And we got to the point where Cade and I could fly the plane by ourselves. And one day we showed up at the airport with our skydiving gear because our plane that we were learning in, our 172, has the ability to take the door off. And my dad used to kind of like brag, he's like, oh, look, it's got the STC to fly with the door removed. And so Kate and I showed up, like, oh, we're going to jump out of it today. And he's like, well, I didn't say we could do that. I said, it's allowed to do that. I mean, Kate right? Like, yeah, well, we're going to jump out of the plane today, so you can either come with us or not. And he chose not.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So he's really firmly against it.
1: Yeah. He, he's not against it, but he just doesn't. I think it scares him. So, and I, I can relate to that, you know, like in a relationship with a base jumper and it's, I don't get scared to jump. I'm not scared of my jumping, but I'm scared to lose my partner. So I, I think a, a father or a mother is scared to lose a child. And it's...
0: Let's talk about fear a little bit because we share that commonality of having partners that, that jump. And I know I experience a lot of fear when Ellen's jumping and, or can experience a lot of fear. Um, and then you in particular have kind of been through it, um, with, uh, Taz and her crash. And, um, can you tell me a little bit about, I think first, I think it's really nice to talk about how people who have such a great vast experience that you do and really been there, done that, um, can still experience fear. Can you tell me first a little bit about like your own relationship with fear? Like, do you still get scared? Do you still have to control your fear a little bit? And and, and how does that work for you?
1: I don't get too fearful too often. Sometimes certain types of exposure, uh, something really new, like Taz took me to a, a jump last year. It was a PCA, which I don't, or static line, which I'd not really ever done too much of. And it was like, you had to. Exit in a stand through a slot in a canyon and come out under an arch. It looked like death for sure. So I was a little more quiet than normal, she said. But I, don't, I don't remember <laughs> like being shaking, scared or anything like that, but I guess I was quiet. Um, and then on certain like exposed approaches, I'm really fairly comfortable being exposed and not protected, but I definitely slow down and, and think about these things. But managing my personal fears fairly easy i still definitely have a fear response i guess like uh in an airplane or wingsuiting when there's like a close call and you and you suck something in, you know i think that i still get that which is important if you don't have that like and like all your senses like spidey senses turn on i think that's when you kind of can be a come a dangerous aviator or base jumper if if things aren't making the hairs on your neck raise then you, sh- you need to be asking why but generally having to eat the fear, or suppress the fear. I don't really have that so much. I definitely have a fear of, of my losing my partner. You know, I, I've seen people lose their partners and, uh, it's hard to come to terms with, you know, Taz has lost a partner. Um, and as she says, it's like, uh, it's not like you had a breakup or something like that. It's just like that partner's no longer there, you know? And so I, I'm afraid of that. Not afraid enough not to have a relationship with a partner who jumps because I think that's something super special that we get to share together. And I think it can be taxing on Taz a little bit when I'm always telling her, oh, you should fly higher, you should fly higher, don't do that, don't do that. And it's not out of that I don't think she's good or that I don't respect her flying. It's just because it's out of I'm scared, you know. Um, and it's something that I have to manage. Um, and I think I'm doing an okay job at it. Uh, it's better when I'm here and jumping with her. Like when I'm at work and she's jumping, and I know she's going on a solo or something, I just sit in stress, which I'm kind of a stress case to begin with. So,
0: wow, you are—you could have fooled me. Yeah, I,
1: I'm a silent stresser. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Those conversations are gonna be really difficult. I've uh, I. I'm glad to hear that you, you're good at it. Uh, I, I don't think I was always good at it. I'm better at it now. Um, but, um, yeah, like, uh, I think, cause both of our partners are super independent and, um, like telling somebody that they shouldn't do something who's independent usually results in the opposite. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, it was a big learning process for me of just like, um, I think just being honest that I was scared. You know, like, uh, I maybe questioned something that she wanted to do or questioned her approach to it, or maybe I didn't think that she had enough training or something like that. And, uh, I know now, like, instead of just being like kind of criticizing, it's more of like, Hey, this is what's going on with me. Like I have a knot in my stomach, you know, I didn't hear from you. Um, and actually even recently too, I mean, as we're talking about Taz is like, uh, Ellen always calls me when she lands. And then it was like a little bit later and then Taz called me and I was just like, my stomach just, Ooh, I could feel my heart in my throat. My stomach was like in knots. And then I picked up the phone and I was waiting for the tone of voice, you know, on, on the other end and a uh, highly stressful moment. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, whew, doesn't feel good, but, um, yeah, I mean, what I was getting to was that uh, just like having that trust, and then just being a little bit more vulnerable to just saying, "Hey, look, you know, I'm putting my guard down here. This is making me feel uncomfortable. This is what happens." And then I think when I was able to just say, "Like, hey, look, I'm scared and I'm nervous," you know, she was able to, Oh, "Okay, well, I'll do whatever I can to like make you feel better. Like, you know, when I I'll let you know when we get to the exit point." And so like, I know that. She, my moments of stress are reduced right it's like usually like five or ten minute period you know I know she's at the exit point I know that she's going to be landing soon that kind of thing did you go through a process as well of like maybe uh, making some mistakes and uh... uh yeah
1: I mean I'm still going through the process and having to I don't want to take away from somebody else's fun and enjoyment and I want everybody to be safe but I also understand what we do is risky you know and and just on this trip, you know, I was like, hey, fly higher. I'm giving her a hard time. Like, you should fly higher, you should fly higher. And then she looks at my video, she's like, well, you're not flying higher. I'm like, well, I think I am, but maybe maybe in perception I'm not. And maybe that's me being defensive now. And so I just need to, it's it's just out of fear, you know. I don't want to, I've been through the situation where I didn't get the phone call, but I well, helicopter landed and somebody told me my girlfriend had just gone in. And that wasn't the greatest feeling, you know. Uh, I think, but... Then, sorry,
0: wait. You said you got a phone call that she had gone in. No,
1: I didn't get a phone call. I got somebody told me in my face, like in a helicopter. Because S- we were sorry, on a...
0: Sorry, please tell the story.
1: Uh, so, yeah, Taz, we were in a helicopter doing heli lines. I jumped out with somebody else on a different heli line and landed in a different landing area. The helicopter then stayed at altitude and took them to a different line. And then the helicopter took longer to come back to me than I thought it would. And when it landed, it was not in the exact way I thought it was going to come in. And so when I got in the helicopter, the pilot looked back at me and said, Taz just went in. Uh, we need to go recover her. And so I was like, Oh, well, okay, that's not, not ideal. But I'd kind of prepared myself for it as you probably should if you have a loved one in base jumping that there's going to be a moment a, a potential moment when this happens whether you're there or you get the phone call so i didn't like freak out or lose my mind or anything like that just my training kicked in and i was like well, all right let's let's go see what happens luckily for me uh within about five minutes of trying to get there we got a phone call from the first person who arrived to her and said that she was conscious and I was like, okay, well, that's a, a good start, but obviously not out of the the thick of it yet. <clears throat> so then, yeah, went and landed the helicopter on the ridgeline and had to descend down to her. And I got to her and, you
0: know. Were you treading through snow? Was it uh, difficult uh, to access? Yeah.
1: So she was about 150 meters from the ridgeline uh, at 12,000 feet in snow. And I was not wearing equipment for that job. So it was a... Uh, semi-treacherous I had to take my time I didn't want to have an incident within an incident uh, so we took the time to get down to her and then once I was there uh, she was semi-conscious not super lucid but I knew we weren't like critical I mean it was critical we, we knew we couldn't rescue her and we needed to call in with our own what we had there we needed to call in heli rescue and that took about 40 minutes and so through that process I was just trying to I was nervous and scared but he's trying to remain positive and strong for Taz and, uh,
0: can you uh, describe? Because we'd had a podcast episode <clears throat> where we talked with Taz and she mm-hmm. gave in a lot of detail on the accident. But can you uh, recap it a little bit for maybe somebody who hasn't heard it?
1: He like the exact cause of what what happened? Yeah. So the helicopter was flying parallel with a uh, uh, a ridge line uh, towards a peak. And they were the intended line to fly was on line of flight further ahead at the peak. Uh, it was a strong headwind. The helicopter was not in the position for the exit. It may have been in position that they jumped previously, but not for that day. It's too strong of a headwind. The pilot gave them the go ahead to climb out, uh, and the leader of the jump climbed out, uh, and he realized the helicopter wasn't in the best position, so he instructed the helicopter pilot to continue to fly forward Um, at the same time the helicopter started to fly forward it started to descend a little bit making the lead jumper a little bit more nervous that he was running out of time instead of like you have all the time in the world I i won't debrief that exactly but so he felt pressured to jump early so he waited as long as he could then the pressure overcame and decided to jump taz followed the jump from inside of the helicopter. Never flying this line before, but it, we did a proper good pre-brief on what the line looked like from Google Earth. She had good essay on what the line should look like. So they jump out. So she was on his right, high, high and right. Um, the lead jumper realized immediately upon jumping out of the helicopter that he was not going to make the line. So as they were flying up this ridge line to their left, he made an immediate left-hand turn to the left to go over the ridge line and fly out into open air. Um, Taz didn't know this. They don't have comms on. Uh, so all she knows is she was following somebody and then she went through their wake because he had turned left 90 degrees. Uh, she falls through his wake and she went immediately into skydiver mode. What happens when you go into somebody's wake and you're supposed to be in a high right formation with them. You look at them and you try and get above them again, get back into your slot. So she split her focus from or she changed her focus from the line to, I just need to get back in my slot. Um, and so she spent about three seconds trying to get back in the slot. About a second, four, she gets into slot and then looks forward and realizes they're crossing that ridge that they'd been paralleling. Uh, and she was now on the high side of that ridge crossing. And the leader was just going to clear it by 50 or 100 feet and it was putting Taz not, not clearing the ridge at all and with no time to compensate at all so she impacted the ridge at about six seconds into the flight out of the helicopter luckily for her it had just snowed the previous night and it was a very windy ridge so it had a corner a snow cornice and so she impacted the snow cornice perfectly like you couldn't hit it any better she hit it like right at the chest level um and it caused her to flip inverted just for a moment so she bounced off the ridge line flipped inverted uh, and then the wind caught her tail wing again, flipped her back to her belly and she landed on the snow and slid down the snow on her belly. At this point, she was running out of the snow field. The snow was a lot thinner there. And so she went through a rock field with her face and then came to rest about 150 meters below the ridgeline.
0: Such a crazy story.
1: Yeah. So, and miraculously when I got to her, Her nose was obviously ripped off, or not obviously, but that's what was going on. So it looked very gruesome. Uh, And after seeing the crater that she created on the ridge and just laying there with a semi-intact wingsuit and a packed parachute, I was like, well, there's no way she's not destroyed internally. Uh, For sure the neck's broken, internal injuries, and blah, blah, blah. And so I went through the process of triaging and trying to secure, put her nose back on, and calling the rescue. And through, like, pressing on her, there was no pain. We couldn't find blood anywhere else. I was like, well, she might be – obviously, maybe there's some internal bleeding still, but nothing was strikingly obvious at the time. And then after about 10 minutes of being there, she was kind of becoming more cohesive. Uh, And then at some point, she had to throw up blood because she'd been drinking so much blood from her nose injury. And she's like, I need to throw up. I was like, well, cool, do it turn your head to the side and trying to like not let her move her neck. And then she's like, no, you know, Tess, she's a strong woman. She stood up <laughs> and started throwing up. I was like, well, maybe she's not super hurt, but we were at 12,000 feet. It was cold and we weren't prepared to be in an Alpine environment because we'd been jumping out of a helicopter. So we started to lose her to hypothermia a little bit towards the end and uh, she kind of passed out again right at the end, so then that fear creeps up again. Like, oh, am I losing her? Am I lo- is this it? Is this is the last time. Are these the last words I get to say to my my girlfriend? Um, and then the helicopter showed up and we scooped her up really quickly. the The rescue guy was only on the ground maybe two minutes. Like we were prepped to get her off the mountain, and it was a really, really fast rescue once he showed up. And then she was in the hospital, I think just under or just over an hour from the time she impacted. Because I could see from where we were crashed, I could see the helipad for the hospital. So it was, wow. it was super close.
0: Yeah. For some people might not know this, but there's like this golden hour, you know, in uh, first response where you really want Someone who's experienced, uh, you know, critical trauma like that needs to be in the hospital within in, under an hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Being able to prep a patient like that, having the knowledge of having, you know, a little wilderness survival or first responder or, or any sort of training that's going to help you expedite that process, even if you're not the like primary source of rescue is huge.
1: Yeah. We got super lucky because in America, a lot of times the places that we're flying, we don't have cell coverage and we're far away from any help. You need to expect to self-rescue. That's like our term in Moab, right? But we're just where we happened to be that day. We had cell coverage and we were close. Had it been... Anywhere further in the backcountry, it could have been a completely different story, you know. And I think we've probably lost jumpers because of this, because it just takes longer than we have to rescue them.
0: I feel like a lot of people um, in Moab, at least that are seasoned, uh, are using something like InReach. Or uh, do you guys have an InReach? Or
1: yes, well, I don't go anywhere without an InReach anymore. We both have one, and I think every jumper should have one. And then every jumper should also have personal small triage kit on them that they can prolong their period before a rescue to stay alive, you know, like a, a tourniquet, a combat dressing, these sort of things that can help you from bleeding out. If, if can you, you, you share
0: in that. detail your kit? Yeah, it's just that. I have a,
1: a garment in reach and then I have a, a, a tourniquet stage for single-hand use, and then I have a combat dressing and a headlamp always. And then I think everything else I can fashion or
0: did you say space blanket?
1: Uh Taz has a space blanket. I don't carry a space blanket. I carry a parachute. But a space yeah. blanket's a good idea too. Yeah.
0: Parachute does help insulate uh, heat. That's a good one. Yeah, like we had a, a doctor on on the podcast and uh, he really opened my eyes to that. I mean, I, I had heard this before, but I just it really like helped ingrain that whole idea that like when someone's losing a lot of blood, the first thing that's gonna happen is uh is uh you know suffering from hypothermia or can risk being hypothermic mm-hmm. because of all the warming properties that blood actually, uh, carries with it.
1: I think it's good to have a good med kit close by as well. But uh, my personal kit, I think needs to be small enough that I'm going to carry it all the time.
0: So, right. The best med kit is the one that you have on you. Right. And if exactly. it's too big and there's too much stuff, you'll not carry it on all the jumps and then, yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Taz is smart. She has stuff stashed in her wingsuit, so it just stays in the wingsuit. I choose to keep mine in a fanny pack, and then I just transition it from jump to jump or whatever. Mm. And then there are some really cool kits you can get now from. Uh, I think you can get them on the Moab Base Association website. That's uh, put, that was put
0: together. That's a pretty nice kit. I yeah, I saw a post about stuff. that. Yeah. That does that looks great. Moab Base Association Do they have a website or something yeah yeah okay don't quote me on what it is. all right Moab base association does Moab base associate have a website yeah yeah okay people can buy Moabase a medical Moabase kit association on it US. uh more base association dot us all yeah. right now you know that's uh man i i think taz sent me a picture of you holding on to her nose while you guys were still in the snow and man it was uh what an intense moment just wild. I'm really happy that everything worked out. But like going through that maybe might've like made the fear a little bit more real. Right. Like is
1: yeah, I think it did for sure. Uh, I, I probably had less fear about it before and now I have more fear about it. Um, I mean, I, I put more time into thinking about, the ones that my friends have left behind, you know, knowing of a lot of, I don't know, widows is not the right term, but those those who are left behind, you know. And I, I have relationships with those people who have been left behind and I have a lot of compassion for them. It hurts my heart, you know. But I listened to the podcast with Marta the other day and she's such a strong woman and she says it so eloquently that She she's not going to tell him not to do it. You know, they they are who they are, and that's why we love them. So they can continue to do it. I'm not going to, I don't control them at all. You know, I just hope that Taz would, or anybody's partner would think about more than themselves. You know, it's a self sport we do, but, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. But think just briefly before you jump, that they're uh, the things you leave behind, and that's all I can ask.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a powerful one too, because like uh, now with uh, with kids and uh, and my wife, I I feel like I'm carrying them on my back a little bit, you know, when I'm flying. So, um, and that's something that's super precious to me. And uh, you know, just like I would balance some, like a valuable piece of delicate some article that I own, I would carry it very gently and carefully, and. Um, I approach my base jumping like that as well. Mm-hmm. Does't mean that I don't don't get a little dirty sometimes, but um, it's with clear intention and um, everything seems to line up perfectly for me that day. And um, I think just like the value of those kind of jumps with a little bit more intensity, um, I don't take it lightly. Like I think before, uh, you know, when it was just so much repetition and base jumping was really like the main focus in my life, it was just like, uh, it was just an accepted thing that like, hey, like I'm running at an 11 or a 9 or whatever, you know, just day in and day out, and that's just how it went. And now it's like, "Mm, I'm going to just hold it at about a general 6, you know, and then those special moments I'll like peak out a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I definitely used to run at a lot higher level than I run now. And I'm okay with running at the level I am. and I, I still, too, get a little bit dirty, and I still like to push. But I'm not driven by how hard I can push. I, I get way more joy out of just the fact that I've been doing this 20 years. It's not how good I am. It's how long you've been doing it.
0: That That's something that I think, um, I mean, you've been involved for 20 years. You've seen a lot of people come and go. Uh, most, I mean, the average base uh, career for lack of a better term is like five years right like yeah. it's thrown around pretty obvious and um, one of the things is like people i mean it, it takes a lot of you know we've sacrificed a lot it doesn't feel like a sacrifice because we're having a great time but there's a lot of things that we miss out on because we're focused on our sport and i think that that's like one aspect of it but i think that there's also this aspect of sort of people lose the sort of, um, satisfaction because it can't always be at 11. You know, you can't always get the same sort of, um, new and variable experiences that come with like jumping new exits, flying a little bit closer. Am I explaining this clearly?
1: Yeah. I think people should change their debriefs as silly as it sounds like think about all the positive things that would not like oh i could have been closer i wasn't fast enough blah blah blah. like no but think about all the good things I mean, we got to go on a cool hike in a beautiful place with beautiful friends and i gotta jump too whether or not i flew the coolest line or whatnot but appreciate all of the other things and i think you'll find more joy in everything try not to be negative yeah it's just a simple choice
0: I think there's something about the way that we're wired as, um, you know, action adventure athletes that like, we want to like continue to get that new and and varied experience. And, um, so you've, have you had those challenges yourself of like, uh, you know, like I'm not getting the same sort of stoke out of when I was going hard or maybe you haven't.
1: I I talked to Carson about this a little bit too, because Carson says, Carson Klein, one of my best friends, who's also like twenty-five years of BASE jumping now, so he's a pro,
0: right? He's yeah. been doing a long yeah, he's time. A really good wingsuit pilot, BASE jumper, pilot in general, everything.
1: He's like, I don't know if I'm driven to to do it anymore. I was like, well, you don't have to do it anymore then. And he's like, and you also don't have to be driven for the same reasons. Like, you're not driven to go fly super low, but you just still enjoy just to go to a skydive off of a cliff. You know, that's totally okay too. Like my drives to do it have changed you know I'm not that hungry have to go proximity fly but I really enjoy filming people jump off I really enjoy spending the time in the mountains with my girlfriend jumping like would I jump if it had just been me that day man yeah, I might not have i might have gone to go and run my mountain bike or I might have gone for a run in the mountains but because Taz wants to do it and I want to do it together I think that that's my drive and that's okay too
0: yeah, I think uh, I recently interviewed Yuri uh, and, um, you know, he's been at it for a long time and uh, he he just put it really simply and I really appreciated the way that um, he broke it down. It was just like, you know, he's quit on numerous occasions and there's been years that have gone by where he didn't base jump and he seems like that there, there was no conflict you know, in his mind about it, you know, cause I think sometimes a lot of us can be like, I know that I do this, like wrap my whole identity around some of the activities that I do. And so like to say that, like, I'm not doing this right now. And am I quitting or this and that? It's just a bunch of noise. Yeah. Like, it's really like, Hey, do I feel excited to go make a base jump or is this something that I'm going to enjoy doing right now? And if yes, then cool, go do it. And if it's no, then go for a mountain bike ride, like you said, or go for a run. And we really don't need to be, um, I guess agonizing over this, like sense of self of like, Hey, we were base jumpers. I want to go base jumping. Cause I know in the past before, like I sort of, I lost my stoke in times of like carnage or just felt like doing other things. And I spent quite a bit of time agonizing, like, huh, is this it? Is this, does this mean that I don't want to jump anymore? And, um, I think that that's a big waste of time. Yeah.
1: I had a break. I quit for five years because I had a a partner who didn't really like it, and I didn't know if I wasn't driven to do it. I was super focused on tunnel flying, and I didn't want to dabble. It was at the time when, like, the Bravant era just kind of started happening, or I, just before that is when I took the break. But a lot of people were dying. I was like, maybe I shouldn't just be dabbling in that sport and was busy doing other things. And I was like, I, it wasn't like a conscious thought, I'm quitting. I just took a break you know and then um, then i had a thought one day i was like i think i i need to jump again so i just got called back to it and haven't quit haven't quit again um so it wasn't that i quit but i think if you want to take a break take a break don't don't let it stress you out it's just like and don't be defined by any i try not to be defined by anything like that like defined by being honest and i try to be a good person but my sport doesn't define me it's a little hard for me to give up <clears throat> tunnel coaching and being on the cutting edge of the tunnel flying world uh, as i was for so long but the thought of me giving it up was harder than actually when i just made the decision and was like okay i need a, a career change and it just happened it, just, it wasn't it wasn't i was like oh okay maybe tunnel flying doesn't define me either it's just like i am a i'm a person you know not a sport
0: I know that's been a real valuable lesson for me, just not getting too, I mean, because I've sort of carried over into my professional life too, is like things happen. I don't get too wrapped up in the idea of like, this doesn't define me. This is just something that I'm doing right now. And it it helps to, um, like you said before, having a third person view of what's going on, you know, you're not in it. You're not, that isn't you. It's just something that's happening and you're able to observe it from a, a wider perspective.
1: Yeah. It's a movie happening. I'm just watching. Yeah, yeah.
0: you're just the hero. Oh, I don't know I'm <laughs> up the hero. <laughs> Protagonist. Well, I hope you're the hero of your own story. <laughs> yeah. Um. Twenty years, huh? That's a long time. What was um, learning like for you? Where did you learn? How'd you start? What gave you the idea to do this crazy thing?
1: Oh, for sure. Point Break. When I was a kid, my parents said no, so I said yes. That's that's the ultimate cause of why I wanted to do it, but. I was in the military, and I was going to be able to go through jump school in the military and things like that, and I was really excited about that, so I sought it out on the civilian side. And I learned in Caldwell, Idaho, uh, static line progression out of a 182 with this guy named Paul James. He looked super sketchy to me <laughs> coming from the military, you know, this okay. guy like long hair. Like, I was like, is he on drugs? He wasn't, but I didn't know anybody on drugs at the time, so he, I definitely thought he was on them. Um, and I don't think I was a great student he left He loves to tell me nowadays that I definitely was not a good student and that I've come a long way, so I don't think <clears throat> I have an argument a lot of times with people about the term naturally talented. I just I think it does a little bit of disservice to people who work really hard maybe i I pick up things faster than other people, but i I definitely was not a good skydiver at first and not a good free flyer at first. It took time and commitment and and earning it you know you just have to put in the time and eventually you get good at things like Taz was telling me the other day she said like, oh maybe I'm good at this thing I'm Like, no, you, you've earned it like nine years coming to Europe to a wingsuit base jump to get to the level where she can fly down mountains the way she does now which is pretty insane it's not it's not that you're good at it you worked really hard for it and now you're reaping the reward for it now keep working and you'll get even better you know
0: Yeah. And uh, sometimes, I mean, that seems so obvious in other sports, right? Where you train and train and train and train. For some reason, I feel like in base jumping, that sort of gets thrown out the window. Like people just think that they can show up and and, um, have arrived in a way. I mean, obviously, I think as more information is spread more smoothly, uh, people you know, have access to more information. They can listen to people on the podcast, like, you know, have been involved in air sports for over 20 years. And they kind of get an idea of like, oh, wait a second. You know, I can't do what Fred's doing because, you know, he's a competitive skydiver. He's got thousands of hours in the tunnel and Mm -hmm. thousands of jumps. And so it's, I think it's becoming a little bit more clear, but for some reason I feel like in the base jumping world, um, we've just sort of skipped over this like overly used term progression in a way um how did you um how did you start base jumping
1: so i started skydiving and i saw the videos at the drop zone of like chronicles three you know of them on their euro trip base jumping and that's the first introduction to base jumping that i'd ever seen was through those videos and i knew i wanted to do it but and i had heard there was a, a guy named dougs doing tandems at the drop zone across the street, but I wasn't allowed to go to that drop zone because they were, like, feuding in Idaho. And so I knew if some people were jumping off this bridge in Idaho, where I was from, but I didn't know anybody. And then I went to a boogie in Lost Prairie, Montana, and met the Utah crew, Scotty Freeland and uh, Susie and Johnny Kokenauer, and Scotty was a base jumper, and his girlfriend, Annie, was a base jumper. And I was like, can I come do that with you? And he was like, absolutely, anytime you want. And so, from Lost Prairie, I drove straight to Utah, and then I lived. That then Utah was my home after that. I, they just took me in and took me to the bridge and let me jump off the bridge. And then Utah is just such a great North American base jumping location for slider down, and now it's turning into a pretty good wingsuiting location if you're into mini golf. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I got my start in Utah, and it was a, a fairly slow progression. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs>
0: seems slow but no it wasn't scotty freeland what a legend what a quiet legend yes um still another one of those so still
1: jumping still base jumping still wingsuit base jumping this year to this day and he's like 26 or 27 years in like still doesn't look old at all he still looks the same still as nice as ever charges silent ninja
0: super talented so they um did you jump? With, you jump with uh, base jumping gear, right? That was. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not th- you're not that old. No. No. <laughs> and
1: and Scotty told me he's like, yeah, 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 I don't have any gear for you. You're gonna have to buy your own gear if you really think you're gonna like it. Just buy a gear. And so I bought a Paragy Pro and a. I think my first parachute was an Ace or no. Yeah. What was it just the Mojo maybe the two, Mojo two forty. Okay. But I switched out pretty quickly because I wasn't new. I was used. And the Mojo 240 was a little too fast for me at the time. So I upsized to a 260. I think it was a, it was just before the Ace. It okay. wasn't an Ace. It was something else, but I can't remember what it was. Not called. a Blackjack? Bla- oh, no, it was an Ace, not a Blackjack. That's um. right.
0: Yeah. Did you buy it from Marty directly? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. What was that experience like?
1: Um, It was super easy because I had Scotty. kind okay. of hooked it up and,
0: yeah, I don't remember, to, uh, paper uh, order forms. All right. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, that was that's right paper order form. Um yeah, I remember that uh, Marty was very um did his background on people before like I had to tell him who was going to teach me and then actually have somebody else verify that as well so he had like two different uh, systems of verification on yeah. if I was ready for this. Really thought that was fantastic.
1: I think I might have interacted with Adam actually.
0: Okay. Adam Filipino. Yeah,
1: for that parachute.
0: And then
1: yeah. And so, yeah, just jumped around Utah and did all the little cliffs around there. And then they took us, we went on a Norway trip the first year. Oh, wow. So I had like Great. 40 or 50 jumps or something. And then we went to Sherog and did the same amount of jumps in two weeks. It was awesome.
0: Tell and, me, do you remember like your first jump in Norway? Like that was your first terminal cliff, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was.
0: Tell me a little bit about that, that first terminal cliff.
1: Uh, so we got there, and the guys were doing the smoke pant thing. Like that was right at the beginning of smoke pants in two thousand three. I think we went there two thousand three or two thousand four. And so we're like, oh, well, we have rain pants. We should do the same thing. So I mean, we're all burning smoke holes in our rain pants for my first terminal jump. You know, because don't jump slick and just try it like that. Like no, that's the new thing. Do that. And so we just. I- jump exit seven or something the first time ever and i can just remember taking i don't know 10 seconds or maybe a little less and thinking it was just the coolest thing in the whole world landing on that golf course surrounded by rocks it was just so nice not it's not a real golf course but looks like one yeah the old pc 101 on the side of the helmet
0: (laughs) (laughs) amazing footage i'm sure
1: amazing (laughs) and then at the end of that trip i had such a hard opening that it blew the camera apart off the side of the helmet oh, wow. hurt my neck. I remember it's pretty pretty awesome times.
0: I'll never forget that first jump at Sherog just like the whole like running up to the edge and just ah oh man. I mean I felt like I was hooked at yeah. that moment. Like this is something that's gonna be a part of my life.
1: The flips, just running and just being able to do tuck three or four flips. I was like,
0: what is this? This is the coolest thing ever. How are yeah. we you? how were we able to do this? Speaking of camera flying at hard openings, like uh, you've jumped some pretty big cameras, right? Like you have a RED. Um,
1: yes. Um, tell some me. Some film cameras. It's, uh,
0: yeah, so like uh, what do you do for neck health? Like what do you do for, uh, do you have any tips or things that you think about when you're jumping wingsuits specifically too?
1: Never look up. Always During look, the opening? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah, always like take what you got. One, have a good parachute that you know is going to work. For the most part and if i jump a big camera like the red or something like that then i wear a neck brace i have a like you know neck diaper okay it's a racing collar or something like that a it's- racing collar uh-huh.
0: I-, I don't know so specifically like tell me a little bit
1: so it's just like It goes under a helmet. It's a big foam pad. It goes all the way around your neck. And then I I brace the chin cup against that on opening. So as soon as I deploy, I put the head on that. And then if it's in a wingsuit, as soon as I can, I get and brace the helmet.
0: Okay. So you're putting your hands by your chin there and you're just supporting uh, so you don't get a little whiplash. right? Yeah,
1: exactly. And then if I'm not in a wingsuit, then my hand goes to the the helmet right away just because my neck is tired. I've got 14,000 skydives or something like that. My neck's tired.
0: Yeah, you've got a long neck, too, like me, and I think that we're, like, more susceptible to whiplash with a longer neck.
1: Yeah, and for a long time, I liked, especially in base jumping, I, I mean, I wanted the parachute to stand me up and tell me that skydiving is over or base jumping is over. Now, as I get older, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have been priming for hard openings all the time, but now I just pull a little higher and have a little slower opening yeah
0: also with like uh what will and matt were saying about tension knots and all the research they did around that it seems like a slower opening may be beneficial to us in a variety of different reasons right easier on our body easier on our gear and could reduce like the chances of tension knots yeah have you had any tension knots no yeah sorry to ask that question like that right and don't jinx ourselves but Mm um i haven't had one yet either that i know of yeah
1: I think about them sometimes. And I saw one happen uh, to Pat Walker, and he did a 270. I was like, man, that's an aggressive turn to land. Like as soon as he pulled, it was in Moab, so you don't have a whole lot of time. But it, I guess it was a tension knot, and he cleared it and then was able to land. So it's something I think about. It's something I hope I react to correctly when it does happen or I can do something to mitigate the the problem. But I've had a lot of tension knots and tannins, but I don't think that counts.
0: No, it doesn't count necessarily, but it gives you some experience of clearing them, right? Or did you just cut them away immediately? Uh,
1: you always try, but yeah. a lot of times with tandems, the lines are so old. There's just no coming back from them. If they're there, cut away. Yeah. But I think the paragliding training helps a little bit. Like we don't have a Stabilo line in wingsuit or in parachutes, but I pull on the outside tips, try and get the tips clear, snap the risers, just fight until the end. You know, my dad taught me when we was just flying, if, if you end up having to crash an airplane, you better still be pulling on the stick and crushing the rudder pedals when the dust settles. So, I mean, just don't, don't give up, you know, you just have to continue to fly, 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 fly.
0: Yeah. Paragliding was, a uh, real helpful for me as far as just like, uh, understanding my wing in general. Um, the, the parachute that is maybe even my wingsuit too, but, um, Doing a couple of SIVs were really helpful. You yeah. did a really good course with Francois, right? No, all my SIV stuff came through Chris Croce. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Stayed on the American side. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, those SIVs, I feel like that should just be a part of uh, base preparation. It's like, I mean, sure, it's a really huge wing. It's really powerful. Maybe not the same sort of uh, dynamics, but um, just working on all of those uh, you know simulating all those uh incidents are mm-hmm. so helpful weight shifts things yeah. like that we don't have that really in base jumping and skydiving i mean there's some people that are incorporating that in their their training repertoire but like uh, you know we, we talk matt blank particularly is like loves to talk about how um you know we should always be training on our jumps and jumping our base jumping gear and you know even with the epicene like just practice those stalls and practice those spins and
1: yeah i think the cross training is super good too like we can talk about weight shift we can talk about how stalls and dynamic things work but if you didn't do them in paragliding it doesn't exactly work the same like you can train it but it doesn't feel the same in paragliding you really feel what weight shift does and you can really understand that the dynamics of that wing so if you learn that then you take it to a dumb parachute and it makes more sense, and well, you don't get that same feedback from the weight shift. You understand that oh, I need to weight shift a certain way to help t- torsion the harness, so I don't get spun into line twist, or I can turn myself into line twist if I want by torsioning the harness a certain way. So. Cross train, yeah, do more things. Don't just get stuck doing one thing. oh it's so much yeah. fun
0: too. I've had so much fun with paragliding lately. Like um, I didn't do a ton this year, but I had one of my best cross country flights ever. And, uh, man, I just feel so lucky to be able to do this stuff. And the, my funny thing is, is that like, if I go out for a day, it's, you know, like, and usually, you know, paragliding days and base jumping days are, you know, good weather. Right. And so like, I never want to like miss out. (laughs) So like. It's like a little bit of a risk to go paragliding on a big cross country flight, because if I bomb out too early, then it's like, fuck, you know, I I could have been jumping. I could have been having a good time with friends hiking in the mountains. And instead, like I'm 20 minutes later, I'm on the ground. But, um, yeah, I'm just, I need to be a little bit more. Um, yeah, I guess not as hungry so that I can continue to progress in, in my paragliding. So, what do you? What's what's next for you? Or do you have um, some goals around your your jumping? Um, do you want to continue the way it's going? Is there something that you want to do? W- where do you see yourself and uh, your jumping going in the future?
1: My goal with jumping is probably just to remain a have a healthy relationship with jumping. Not let it run me. Not me run it. Just be happy doing what I'm doing. Um, I always like cool filming projects, so I'm fortunate enough to be. Connected enough with uh, the Red Bull American team that I get to go film them when they have cool ideas. So I hope I get to do more of that and then continue just uh, the aviation career and then maybe in the future have a house here in
0: Chamonix or somewhere close by. That would be really nice. It would be great to have you guys here sometimes. What about um, alpinism? I, you bought some new boots. Yes. Uh, you got a bit of a taste I don't know already. if you know this
1: or not, but I'm pretty much an alpine pro now. I've done one alpine jump. <laughs> As uh, Rudy says, I, I walked a little bit silly with my crampons. He's like, I, I watched you walk for an hour. I couldn't tell exactly what was going wrong, but it, it wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's something I really want to do more of, I think. I'm really drawn into that, even though the, the flights might not be the coolest flights ever, but I like the whole mission of having all the gear and hard to access places that not very many people get access. And then combining that with base jumping. Sweet.
0: It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. What is it about how earning it it's make the harder it is to earn it? The, like the sweeter it is. Isn't yeah, it?
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I think earlier on in my career, I liked the heli hikes way better or the easy gondola access things but now anymore i just i want to earn all of it like, i want to hike from where we land to the top I mean, don't get me wrong i still like some shuttles and things like that but something about doing the whole process is special and if it requires extra gear ropes crampons, ice axes that's that's super cool
0: yeah you said that maybe the flights aren't as intense or um i don't know exactly remember the words you used to use but it's true like when you have like a ice axe and crampons and big boots and all the stuff that goes with it the ropes and everything like that like the lines might not be quite as you know um cutting edge intense but the whole process of it you know is uh is amazing
1: yeah it's amazing I walked down from a base jump this year because the clouds weren't great and the clouds might have got better, but I didn't even care. We walked all the way to the top. It was a beautiful hike and well, it's good enough. Let's just walk down. And I didn't even care. You know, it didn't eat me up or anything like that. I was just like, yeah, I like the whole experience.
0: There's something to satisfaction, right? Um, I was having this conversation with Ellen just the other day of like, you know we were both feeling really satisfied. You know, we have a bunch of friends who are in town and they're getting after it and uh, some harder than others. and uh, I think it was just one day we were both like, meh, kind of want to like, you know, go hang out, go to the spa or something and just chill. And we were both sort of like, huh, we're getting old or something like that. it feels good. It feels good. yeah, like satisfaction with less effort is man, I'm like really starting to appreciate that like, you know for years and years and years just chasing after it constantly just having a little bit of satisfaction knowing that you've had enough mm-hmm. i mean maybe we just sound like a couple old dudes now but like um i don't know for me it felt really good Man, and it sounds like that's I was what a you're young guy about. for
1: so long and so hungry to try and prove myself and now i'm just so happy to be the old guy
0: yeah pretty nice. I mean, that's kind of a message I like to share with some of the younger guys too, because it's like, um, you kind of get lost in this idea of like, Oh no, more, 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 more. Yeah, sure. It's really good to be current and do more jumps when you're learning. And, you know, there's a fine balance there of, of, of gaining experience, but it's like, um, it just keeps getting better and better too. Right. It's just like more fun. The gear is better. The suits are better. Uh, the knowledge base is better. And, um, I think it's, not being so such in a hurry to like get it done all the time um i think you end up like jumping longer like we have right yeah exactly don't be in a rush there's a ton of other topics i'd love to cover with you your flight's taking off soon we have to have you at the airport another half an hour but yeah my stress level is about to spike now yeah (laughs) (laughs) So we got to wrap it up. Okay. Um, But thanks so much for getting up early to do this. And uh, it's been a pleasure to see you. And thanks for sharing everything on the podcast.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you guys for putting on this podcast. You and Matt have been doing a really great job and it's been fun to listen to. I listen to it all the time and
0: keep it up, please. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts about what you've just heard, please don't hesitate to hit us up. A big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound mixer and co-producer. We love you, man. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please visit exitpointpodcast.com. See you on the next one.